When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Well, as you may have heard, Adam Newman, the soon-to-not-be CEO of WeWork, is leaving the company and he's exiting with $1.7 billion. Pretty remarkable for starting a company where in 2018 it lost about that much money, about $1.7 billion. So I'm going to be talking about that. We have Boeing, which it just can't escape bad news. This company is just bad news after bad news. And you think maybe things will turn around with it. Maybe it won't get worse. But then you see Reuters report that Boeing's pilots, some of their top pilots, had these internal messages that got out. And one of them, I kid you not, says, so I basically lied to regulators. That's a direct quote from one of Boeing's pilots. So we're talking about that. And then another one of our beloved longtime dividend payers, Johnson & Johnson, also seems to be getting riddled with bad news. Over the weekend, the stock dropped 6% out of news that came out that they were recalling a baby powder because of the asbestos claims. So this is something that we've known about a long time for Johnson Johnson, that they had these claims that this stuff was in their baby powders. They're finally going to have to pay the price for it. I'm going to be talking about how this company stands, how this affects their bottom lines, where the company goes from there, and especially if the dividends are safe in each of these companies. So we'll see how it affects that as well. First of all, I want to talk about my portfolio and specifically about its performance against the S&P 500. I get a lot of people commenting and questioning saying, hey, have you looked at your portfolio and seen how it's compared against the S&P 500 as a benchmark? Um, there's a couple issues with this. One of them is that I deposit money like randomly into my portfolio and to compare it to the S&P 500, I would have to compare the performance of the S&P 500 as if I deposited money at those same time periods, right? So if there's days in the S&P 500 where there's dips in the market and I put money into my portfolio, likewise, I'd have to compare it with the S&P 500 if I deposited that money at the same time. So it's very difficult to just do a one-to-one -one comparison. Another problem is, is that I have 20% of my portfolio in bonds. So if you were going to actually do an accurate comparison to the S&P 500, you would need to compare 80% being the S&P 500 and then like 20% being investor grade bonds or something like that. That'd be a little bit better of a comparison. But regardless, for people wanting to just see a side by side of how this is performed, we can go to the past month here. Mine's up 1.7% money weighted up a thousand dollars if i go to the s p 500 and i go to month here it's up 0.5 percent so over the past month my portfolio has outperformed the s p 500 if i go to the past quarter which is the past three months since july 22nd my portfolio has gone up a lot it's gone up three thousand three hundred dollars 6.5 percent let's compare that to the s p 500 okay so let's go to six months here we'll find july 22nd 0.73%. So the S&P 500 in the past 90 days hasn't been up a percent. My portfolio is up 6.5%. Now people say, well, you know, my portfolio is really conservative. It's really boring. It's just dividend companies and bonds. Does that sound boring that the S&P 500 is up not even 1% in the past 90 days? Mine's up 6.5%. So people that are saying that, you know, this isn't an aggressive way to expand your wealth, that you can't have great returns with this kind of portfolio. I'm telling you, 
If that's your mind frame, you haven't looked at the data, these portfolios can give extremely good and consistent returns over long periods of time. But what I like the most about that is not the fact that they can have great returns. It's the fact that I think that there's a lot of safety within these portfolios. When you have downturns, the income from them, out of this money in the past 90 days, I made $500 in dividends. That's quite a bit and it's going up really fast. So when you have this constant income, even if the market dips down, if it was to go down 5%, 10%, or we're going to go into a bear market and it goes down 20%, I get to still continue to have this income. Because as we can see in examples of the past, most of the time the dividend income you earn does not drop down nearly as much as the general market. So the, the dividends usually don't get cut nearly to the same extent. Now, another thing I'll say is some people might notice this huge jagged drop right here. This wasn't a performance issue. If you go back and watch my series, I sold out of like six different companies and then purchased back into different ones the following day. So that's all that was. So if I didn't do that, this would be a nice smooth graph. But since I had one day where I sold out of it, that's what it shows right there. Now, overall, I'm up $7,500. If I go to my YouTube channel here, you can see this is my latest video I did. On the thumbnail, this dollar amount, 61800 I started off and I just put the dollar amount of my portfolio. I thought it would be easy for people to see. But I started just putting it on every single thumbnail, kind of as a tradition now, so people can see the growth of the portfolio over time. But this is the value of the portfolio. So it was $61,800 in my last video. Right now, the total value is $62,400. So just in the past couple days, the past three days, it's gone up quite a bit. In the past week, it's gone up $560. And none of it, I've not made a single deposit from when I posted this video to now. The portfolio has been performing really well. Another thing that I just wanted to mention before moving on to the news was that some people will give you advice that owning an index is just safer. That's the word they'll often use. They won't say it's easier, right? Because it is easier just to buy an index or an ETF. That's a much easier route to go than, than picking your own stocks. But they use the word safer. And I don't like that word because I don't think it's always true. A portfolio like this, I feel more comfortable. I feel like there's more safety in my portfolio than if I was going to put it into the S&P 500. If you go back and you look at the S&P 500, it has very big dips and spikes. And a lot of the companies in S&P 500 are these growth companies like Netflix that have PE ratios of 80 plus. These ridiculously high PE ratios because they're tech companies. They're based off of multiples that numbers don't make sense. They're just based off of how people feel about the company and their future growth prospects, right? The companies that I hold are not based off of those metrics. These are mostly well-established companies with low PE ratios that have high amounts of cash flow that could weather storms and weather recessions. Those are the type of holdings I have. So even though I have less of them, I only have like 50 different companies here compared to the S&P 500. So I have 10 times less companies. I feel like my portfolio is safer than the S&P 500. That's how I personally feel about it. When I deposit money into my portfolio, I feel like I'm taking less risk and I have more safety than if I was going to deposit into the S&P 500 index fund. That's the way that I look at it. Even the way that I've organized this, the sectors that are the most heavily weighted on the top are the ones that make the most stable, consistent growth, like real estate, finance, and healthcare. And then the ones that are a little bit more volatile, like tech, the ones that are more volatile, like energy, and the ones that are more cyclical, like industrials, those ones are weighted a lot less. So the sectors that I think are harder to depend on are the ones that I give less of a weighting to. The ones that make up the bulk of my portfolio are ones that I think are good 
all year round, even during recessions and during good times. Those are the sectors that I try to weight towards the top. So I do get a lot of questions of how do I pick these percentages? You know, what's my thought process? Some of it has to do with the yield, but a lot of it is due to the fact that tech companies for the most part are based off of crazy multiples. Right now, people use tech as an excuse for, well, we don't need to analyze the numbers. You know, this company's growing, so who cares? We can buy it at any valuation. That's what tech means a lot of times. Energy is very volatile. It's based off the price of oil, things that these companies can't even control. And so I have that weighted the lowest. We have industrials that are very cyclical. So again, I only have a 4% weighting to it. As we get into the more stable industries, telecom, consumers, utilities, healthcare, finance, bonds, and real estate, the weighting gets higher and higher and higher. And that's how I've decided to do my portfolio. So I feel like it's a very good balance. Overall, the total yield of it is about 3.7% starting out right now. Now, another thing I've been asked is how this compares to the performance of my Roth IRA. So if I go over and I look at my Roth IRA, let's take a look and see how that's doing. This is another account. This is on the flip side of it. So I've picked all ETFs and none of these are the S&P 500, but they're all very similar companies. We have SPHD, which is 50 of the highest dividend paying companies in SP 500. We have VYM, which again is lots of dividend paying companies. VNQ, which is Vanguard's real estate REIT fund, just has a, a lot of real estate in it. LQD, that's corporate bonds. EMB and BNDX, these are both uh, investments in foreign bonds, right? Emerging in foreign bonds. So this portfolio, again, is all based around the same, the same ideas and principles of my investing where everything I hold residually just pays me money all the time. That's the overriding goal of it. But this one is all ETS. It's totally hands-off. I never check it, never really look at it. These things, they just take care of themselves. Is it safer than my normal portfolio? I don't think so, but it's far easier. I do nothing to maintain this. I literally just set it, forget it. I never have to look at it. So if you're not interested in investing, if investing is a chore to you, you don't like thinking about it, you don't like doing it, do something like this. Just build a simple ETF portfolio. Then you never have to worry about it again. Now, the last thing I'll mention on this topic is looking at the dividend income graph here, because this whole portfolio, the entire idea of it is based off of investment philosophy that I'm buying what I call productive assets, right? Some people just call that assets, but really anything that has value is technically an asset. Like if you're going to go to an accountant and you're going to say, you know, tally up all your assets, anything that holds value is an asset. Some of them are depreciating like cars. Some of them appreciate like investments. Productive assets is what I term my investment philosophy, which productive assets are anything that residually give you a return, residually put money back into your pocket. I call that a productive asset. Everything I hold in my portfolio is a productive asset. If one of these companies stop paying dividends, if they don't residually pay me back money, I will sell out of that holding. I will get rid of the holding. And part of that is I look at my income that I'm getting from it. If I go to this graph here, this is my monthly dividend tracking. I started this in January 2018 when I started my portfolio. And you can see what's happened here. Over time, this has just gone up and up and up as I've continually invested into my portfolio. Last month, I got $161. My all-time high is $166. Since these companies pay at all different times, you expect to see you know ups and downs. But overall, the trend is going up. So I'm excited to see what it's going to be next month, what my total income will be. But regardless, I'm going to keep tracking this, keeping you up to date with my income on my portfolio. The idea is, is that the, the more that this increases, the more income that you're getting passively means the more you're moving from a role of where you're working for all your money 
to where your money's working for you. All this money is helping me invest. It's going right back into my investments. This $161 that I earned last month in dividends, that purchased more shares. And that starts a snowball effect where now those shares that I purchased from my previously purchased shares are now paying me more dividends. I have more ownership and it's paying me more income. So I'd love to get above $200 before the end of the year. We'll see if we hit that goal, but that'd be pretty awesome if I had a month where I hit above $200 in 2019. Okay, well, that's enough of my portfolio here. I I have to talk about this news, WeWork, because honestly, it makes me kind of frustrated even talking about this. You have a company, WeWork, which is what they do is they rent out, they lease commercial real estate, and they pretty up the office with all the the modern workplace, right? They get that mid-century IKEA furniture, they throw that in the office, and then they have an app and a website. And now they're not just a real estate company that loses money every year. Now they're a tech company. And it's okay to lose money when you're a tech company. And since you're a tech company, it's also okay to have nothing make sense. You don't need to make money. You don't need to have any clear business model. There needs to be no plan to go to profitability anytime soon. You can just lose money. And the price that you want to sell your company can be anything. In fact, let's just pick a number out of the air, $47 billion. How does that sound? I know you might be thinking, why didn't they just round this to $50 billion? I don't know. You know, it, w- it wouldn't have made a difference. $47 billion was based off of nothing. But regardless, that's the price that they were trying to sell this company to the public about two months ago. To put that in perspective, this company, WeWork, loses $800 million to $1.7 billion a year. That's how much money this company loses. $47 billion, the price they're trying to sell that, Target's worth about $50 billion. Target, the brand, the whole company that has thousands of locations, that's very profitable, that's growing, that's been paying a dividend for a long time, that's competing with Amazon and Walmart online, that company, they're saying WeWork is worth about as much as that. That's what they tried to sell it to you. Now, look what's happened over the past month. The deal which the company's announced late Tuesday, values WeWork at about $8 billion, a far cry from what it was aiming for an initial public offering early this year, and even less than the $47 billion at which a January investment from SoftBank pegged its worth. So SoftBank just keeps infusing more money in this. They're just chasing a loss on it. Now they own 80% of the company. They've pushed the CEO out of it. But regardless, you can see what happens here. A company that they wanted to IPO at, at $47 billion, now it's worth one-fifth as much in a matter of two months. You know, was it really priced accurately at the IPO? A company that was worth $47 billion, apparently, a couple months ago, is now worth $8 billion. That's by the same group, by SoftBank, is the one that's that's creating these valuations by the, the amount they're investing in it. Now, it's also funny to look at previous interviews and people that have talked about this company just a couple months ago. This isn't like years ago, just a few months ago, to look at the type of things that Adam Newman was saying, the type of things he was selling us and other people surrounding this company. Here is Adam Newman talking about going public with WeWork. Most companies in the world run their company with earning, quarterly earning reports. And when I'm going to make a decision, this is true about life and true about a business. When I'm going to make a decision based on three months forward, I'm not going to make the right decision. Masse is very famous for making a 300-year plan. Now, I will say that I agree with him on the fact that he isn't making decisions quarterly. That's for sure. You can tell by the fact that the company was losing so much money every single quarter after quarter to the point where it was going bankrupt and needed to be bailed out by a large bank. 
that's a that's a clear indicator that, that he is really thinking 300 years in the future. Um, I actually do believe him on that. To invest in a company like WeWork, you might actually have to wait 300 years to get any return on your investment. A company like that valued at $47 billion, it might take you 300 years to actually make your money back. So he may be telling the truth here. Now, another part of this interview that's funny is Ashton Kutcher. I don't really know how he got involved with WeWork. I think it's because it was a hip company revolutionizing something. I don't know. But he is involved with WeWork. I don't know how much he actually invested in it. But here's an interview of him talking specifically about WeWork and sharing his thoughts on it. I just want to react to a couple things he says here and see what he was saying then compared to what actually happened. The minute that you start having to report publicly, you have to start playing games with your numbers. You have to start playing games with your growth. And and usually the person that loses in that situation is the consumer. So for trying to create extraordinary experiences for consumers over time, the longer those companies can stay private. And by Masa coming in and enabling that, the more unbelievable the experience and more life-changing the experience will be for people. Now, Ashton Kutcher here says that, you know, the issue with going public, one part of it is that you have to play all these games with accounting, right? You have to worry about accounting instead of just being a private company where you don't have to worry about that. It is tough when your company, you know, you actually have to present the numbers and show how how poorly things are going with it. I think that that's a, that could be a rough thing. When you have a terribly ran private company that's losing incredible amounts of money, that's tough when you become a public company and all of a sudden you have all these rules and stuff that say, hey, we got to see exactly how much money you're losing. I think that that would also be very tough. In fact, when WeWork was trying to go public, one of the biggest criticisms of it was the fact that it had such sloppy accounting. If I go to one part here, it says, the document leaves unanswered some basic questions about the company's finances. For example, how many new workstations that we, it's called the We Company, so we deliver in the first half of this year? The prospectus filed in August said 273,000. Barely a month later, an amended version said 106,000. What was the total gross cost? In August, we said 1.3 billion. In September, 800 million. The reason for the dramatic changes is that the first version was wrong. People familiar with the matter said. So their accounting was completely sloppy. They were wrong on lots of numbers and that soured a lot of investors that were looking at investing in this company. And their attempts to go public and them having to divulge their numbers it was just exposure to what a mess this was. That's all it was, is this company was a mess. The regulations that we have that say that we have to know all this information becoming public is what unraveled this company. Now, this interview with Ashton Kutcher, the lady that interviewed him, this is her, and, and she has something interesting to say about what Ashton said in this interview. Now, Kutcher is not an investor. He's a strategic partner for WeWork, but he said that he wasn't afraid of getting in at the current valuations, the highest one, the bumped up to $47 billion. He said he didn't understand the business for a long time, but now he sees it as a tech company, guys. So just to be clear, Ashton Kutcher said that he wasn't afraid, you know, he said in this interview that he wouldn't be afraid to invest in the company at that bumped up valuation of $47 billion. And the reason why is because, you know, even though the valuation was bumped up, now he saw it as a tech company. Once he was able to see it as a tech company, then he was okay saying, I would invest in it at this $47 billion valuation. Now, had he actually invested at that valuation, he would be down about 80% on his investment right now. So just something to think about there. Now, of course, WeWork isn't the only company that's having its troubles. We have Boeing over here. 
which unlike WeWork, this is a company that's supposed to be stable, right? They're a duopoly. It's between Boeing and Airbus, these two companies that control pretty much all the air traffic in the world. So Boeing has had this whole MCAS system cause two fatal plane crashes. Dennis Millenberg has been the CEO over this and has said that he's sorry about it and all that type of stuff. At the same time, he's he's somewhat tried to shift blame saying, oh yeah, the MCAS system increased the workload for the pilots. Not the true phrasing, which should be the MCAS system single-handedly took down these planes. In every realistic sense, that's what happened. It didn't just increase a little bit of the workload for the pilots. This system brought down the planes. Now there's ex-pilots complaining of management pressure on the MAX, saying you know they felt pressured to move things quicker, take certain depths that they normally wouldn't because of management to meet certain deadlines. We have this breaking news that two pilots, there are two pilots for Boeing at the time that were over this whole thing. Part of this report says that Boeing shares continued their slide Monday after explosive messages last week revealed a top pilot had concerns about the system on the 737 MAX that was later implicated in the two fatal crashes. Now, Reuters is the one that broke this news, and they have a transcript of this conversation between these two pilots. I'll read one little excerpt here. It says, Oh, shocker alert, the MCAS is now active down to M.2. It's running rampant in the sim on me. At least that's what Vince thinks is happening. Then the other one says, oh, great. That means we have to update the speed trim description in volume two. And he says, so basically I lied to regulators unknowingly. And he goes, well, it wasn't a lie. No one told us that was the case. Now, later on in this conversation, Mark, one of the pilots says, granted, I suck at flying, but even this was egregious. They, they say in one part that, I'm leveling off at like 4,000 feet, 230 knots, and the plane is trimming itself like crazy. I'm like, what? These are quotes from their conversation. This was an internal conversation that somehow got leaked. I don't know how Reuters was able to get hold of it. But this conversation shows that even pilots working on this program after they already released it to regulators, and I'm sure these concerns were not shared with the regulators. Now, Dennis Millenberg has repeated over and over again that Boeing will have these planes, the 737 MAX, up by the end of the year. Do investors believe him? Probably not right now because, you know, he hasn't really been all that accurate on his predictions so far. And so him saying that they're going to be up at the end of the year is is kind of a toss-up at this point. I thought that Dennis Millenberg should have stepped down after this happened. I think it would repair some of Boeing's image. You know, the person that was over the company during this time kind of takes ownership of these problems. Whether it was his fault or not, he was in control of the company and the processes and everything in the place during the time that this happened. So he has been very resistant to that idea. So he doesn't want to end his tenure at Boeing with two fatal airplane crashes and then him stepping down afterwards. So he plans on staying with Boeing. And they did a conference call earlier this month. I'll read an excerpt from this article. It says, in the first two critical public appearances this month, Muhlenberg held a teleconference call with analysts in the press to discuss the earnings results, which showed Boeing's third quarter profits slashed in half compared with a year earlier. If approval to fly the MAX commercially does come by December, Muhlenberg said Boeing plans to incrementally increase production throughout next year from the current rate of 42 jets per month to 57 per month. However, He reiterated this warning that should the grounding extend into next year, we might need to consider possible further rate reductions or other options, including a temporary shutdown of the max production line in Renton. So obviously their profits from their third quarter this year being cut in half compared to what it was the prior year, 
that is a huge amount of profit loss. A company that is now making half as much as it was the previous year, that is pretty bad. But we're talking about Boeing here. Again, this is a duopoly. They really have no other competitors in the U.S. They have one company in Europe that's their main competitor that also has a huge backlog. But even so, depending on how long this plane stays on the ground, those losses will just be extended further and further, and it'll be harder and harder for Boeing to, to catch back up. So it's something to keep an eye on there. I'll let you guys know as this continues to develop. Now, of course, I got to talk about Johnson & Johnson. This is a company that has been paying dividends for longer than most of us listening have probably been alive. So like 50 plus years. And here's the stock graph from just the past five days. You'll notice that it was trading around 137 a share. And then in one day, it went down about 6%, trading at 128. Right now, it's back up a little bit to 130. And it's kind of gone flat there. This big drop is because Johnson & Johnson announced that they were doing this recall of baby powders that may or may not have asbestos in it. They're doing it voluntarily, but regardless, it's more bad publicity, more costs for Johnson & Johnson. On top of that, like I mentioned in the last episode, they have tens of thousands of lawsuits against them. And you can see that this is with more than just baby powders. Here we have J&J hit with $8 billion jury award over antipsychotic drug. That was one segment that was getting really hurt. They're having a lot of lawsuits over that one. And then we have Hare J&J offers $4 billion opioid litigation settlement. So they have opioids, they have baby powders, they have psychedelic drugs. They have a, a lot of other ones, smaller ones, that the, they're having trouble with as well. So tens of thousands of lawsuits against them. They're trying to work through all of these lawsuits. And a lot of people are scared holding this company now. I do not think that their dividend is in trouble at all. I think they'll continue to pay it. They paid it for such a long time that they're not going to want to break that streak. I think that this company will do just about anything to not break that streak of paying their dividend. Now, part of what I think is that people see these big numbers, lawsuits in the thousands, they see billions of dollars being paid out, and it seems very intimidating, but they don't have an idea of the scale of Johnson & Johnson's balance sheet. A lot of these lawsuits and a lot of these deals they're making are really peanuts in compared to what they have to deal with. For instance, their their baby powders are a very small part of a small segment of their business. Even if they discontinued selling that product altogether, Johnson & Johnson's bottom line would barely be touched by it. If we go to Seeking Alpha here, they have a 44% payout ratio right now. So just by that, they have a, a lot of net revenue that they can use to pay out that dividend even if their revenue goes down. They have a lot of leeway there. Right there, it says that they've been paying for 57 years here. On top of that, if you even break down the liabilities that they're facing right now, on a conservative estimate, the talc powder, the max that that would really cost them is $15.5 billion. The opioids could cost about $5 billion. They're expected to pay somewhere around $6.57 billion. Under those uh, assumptions, J&J's total liabilities would be somewhere around $27 billion. You could even say about $30 billion. Even with that payout of $30 billion, they would still be able to pay their dividend. They could cut it just to be conservative, but the company would still have net cash flow to be able to afford their dividend, even if they had to pay $30 billion in liabilities from these lawsuits. So that's why I think that this company, even if you buy it now after it dropped the 6%, I think it's a pretty safe buy. You know, I think that the more that this company goes down in price because of these fares and this bad press that's coming out, the better deal you're getting on this company that I think will eventually recover from the challenges that they're facing. Okay, let's get to some questions. Joseph Carlson Show at gmail.com. Joseph Carlson Show at gmail.com. The first one's from Roman. He says, hey, Joseph, can you show us what it looks like when a company does it right when listing as an initial public offering? What are you looking for? 
I would understand that companies doing an IPO are riskier than long-standing companies, so would you personally not invest in one because of your dividend strategy needing a proven track record? Anyways, I've seen all your videos and love any time you make a new one. I'm close to investing myself and really want to understand as much as I can. Even small things before I start, I just have to pay off all my consumer debt first. All right, Roman. So you have a couple of questions there. First, uh, do I even invest in IPOs? Does that fit with my investment strategy? And secondly, if I do invest in IPOs, what type of characteristics in these companies would I be looking for? So the first question is no, I don't invest in IPOs. It's just, I don't think it's worth it, first of all. So if you're asking my opinion, do I think that it's worth your time to go and study out different companies that are listing public and then try to find out which one's the best deal? It's exciting. It can be entertaining. So from that standpoint, if you just enjoy the thrill of studying these companies and looking at it from an entertainment standpoint, sure. Do I think it is a good strategy in generating long-term wealth and that it's a place that you should put lots of money in? No, I think that you're, you're rolling the dice really heavily there. There's already a lot of risk in the marketplace. When you're playing with IPOs, I think you're enhancing the risk and there's not that much benefit to it. Even beyond that, it doesn't fit with my overall investment strategy. Like I said, everything that I hold residually pays me money. I call that productive assets, meaning whether it's stocks or bonds, they return me capital in a very direct way through dividends or interest residually all the time. If they stop doing that, they're not going to be in my portfolio very long. Now, as it turns out, very young companies that are coming into IPOs that are very new and growing, even if they are profitable, which most of the IPOs I've seen aren't profitable, but even of the companies that are profitable going into an IPO, they likely won't pay dividends because all that profit is being reinvested back into the company. So that rules it out of my strategy to begin with. But let's just pretend for a minute that I am looking to invest in IPOs. What is the main characteristic I would look for? I would seek out companies that have a very clear short path to profitability. Not 10 years or 300 years, like Adam Newman wants, but maybe a year, two years max till profitability. Or best yet, if they're profitable before they're IPOing. And you might think, well, there's no company that's IPOing that's actually profitable. There are companies that actually are turning a profit when they IPO. Atlassian is one of them. This stock here, if I go over the max stock line and I go from the beginning of the IPO three years later, it's up 291%. Pretty good for a new company. And it had a very unique thing about it. When it first IPO'd, it was already a profitable company. They had a business model where they gave away their software for free, is a freemium model, and their core users that really liked the product and wanted enhanced features, they paid for the premium version. And that allowed them to not really have a sales team. The product just spread like wildfire and sold itself. So they were able to IPO with very minimal costs with a product that everybody knew about. And because of that, they're able to turn a profit right as they're IPOing. And even though this stock line is pretty flat for like the first year and a half, owning a company that you know is turning a profit, you don't have to worry about it. As long as it's making money, it's growing, and it's turning a profit, you don't have to stress about it. So you can afford to own it for years and years, waiting for the stock to go up as it increases its profits. If you actually look at this, there's an article. This was written in 2015, the same year that this company went public. One part of it says, on Thursday... Collaboration software maker had one of the biggest IPOs of 2015, raising $460 million and valuing the company at around $4.4 billion. Simply put, investors pay attention when you have unique business models, strong revenue growth, and oh yeah, profits. Now that last sentence there, they're saying that they have a unique business model, strong revenue growth, and oh yeah, profits. 
But I don't think the business model is all that unique. I think the thing that's really unique about this company is that they're profitable. For a lot of the IPO market, it's a crazy idea to actually have profits. You see, when you have a, a, a company, the idea of the company is to create a product and service and you sell that product or service for more than the cost of you to create it. And then with the difference there, that's capital being created. That's profits being created that can be reinvested or paid out as dividends or done whatever with. But that's the idea of a company is the actual product or service that you're creating. You're, you're charging more to the customer than the cost of you creating that. When a company can't do that or when it says that it's going to do that in the future, there is no guarantee. You're, you're basing all these growth metrics and these amazing companies that create amazing products that are completely subsidized by the investor. And there's no guarantee that they will be able to turn a profit later on. Because a turn a profit later on, that means that they need to increase price or cut costs. And each one of those can change the product, change the end result, and change the value proposition of it. So they already had this figured out before they IPO'd. And that led to them being a pretty successful IPO, pretty profitable holding if you held it for three years. We can look at the other side of things. Helios and Matheson, this is MoviePass, as everybody knows that that's the company here. This is probably the most extreme, ridiculous example of a company that doesn't understand that the idea of a company is to charge more than your cost of creating the goods or service. This is a company that its business model was to say, hey, I'll sell you this $10. All you have to do is pay me $7 and give me your email address. That's really all this company was. Give me some really basic, useless information that's not that monetizable, and I'll, I'll give you a lot of money in the process. Of course, funded by investors, not funded by like other aspects of the company that are profitable, just funded purely by investors. And what happened with this company? As it continued to sell its product for more than the cost of creating it, it continued to lose money. It needed more money from investors. And then people continued to use the product more and more. They're going to movies every single day when they're only have to pay like 15 bucks a month for it. And so it became less like selling $10 for seven. It more became like selling $10 for two or $3. That was the return this company was getting. It was pretty much the exact opposite of what a company is supposed to do. Instead of creating the product and charging more for it, they're creating a product and charging far less for it. So the winner in this situation was the people that signed up for MoviePass, not the investors that were completely suckered into funding this thing, but the people that signed up for it and used it on their end, they're on the other end of that equation. I'm sure there's people that are listening to this that went to movies six times a month with MoviePass and paid 15 bucks for it. So they were just winning the benefits of this stupid business model. And of course, it ended up in bankruptcy. But you can even see at the point that it IPO'd, what was it? $2,200 a share. It went up to, what is this? $8,300 a share at one point. And then it dropped back down to $2,500. I mean, people lost a fortune in this company. Investors were just lighting their money on fire with this company saying, hey, I want to pay for random people to go to the movies. That's what I'm doing with my money. I'm not investing into a real company. I'm just doing a GoFundMe for people to be able to go to the movies for free. That's what you were doing if you invested in MoviePass. And a lot of companies IPOing in 2019, their business model is a little bit better than MoviePass, but it's still not that much different. They're doing the same basic principle of selling their goods or service for less than the cost of creating it. Here's an article just from this year from CNBC that says, this year's IPO class, that's 2019, is the least profitable of any year since the tech bubble. So in the past 20 years, the IPOs this year have been the least profitable. 
That is something that I think is overall concerning. And you've seen the results of a lot of these. A lot of them are completely blowing up on the investors. Investors are saying they're not going to put money into these. And I think that that's a good thing. I think it's a good thing that the investors, the public is catching on and saying, look, if you want to have a company go public, you need to have your business model figured out. Selling something for less than the cost of creating it is not a good business model. You need to figure out how to actually turn a profit. And if we go and just take a quick look at the ones that have already happened, these companies that aren't really profitable, but they have great products because they're being subsidized by investors, you can see how this is turning out. It's a complete minefield. You don't know where you're going to step. We got Smile Direct. That's down 46% since IPO. Chewy Stock. This is down 23% since IPO. Lyft down 45% since IPO. Uber, down 20.5% since IPO. Slack, down 44% since IPO. And then Peloton, down 16% since IPO. These are some of the biggest IPOs. These are the names that people keep track of that they hear in the news. A lot of them are great products. Slack, Peloton, these are quality products. But again, they have to figure out how to turn a profit with them before I'd ever give them my money. So really, Roman, it comes back to my main point of why would I really want to give these companies my money in the first place? These aren't the only companies that I can buy today or yesterday or tomorrow. These new IPOs, they draw a lot of media attention. So they they might draw your focus away from other companies that already have large moats, good business, good profits. They already have their entire business model figured out. Those are the type of companies that you want to put your money in. Why would I put my money into these new unprofitable companies that are extremely high risk? That's just like a minefield of stepping on the ones that are going to drop 40% in value when I can invest in companies like Realty Income Corp that have been a massive wealth generation machine for the past 10 years. Companies like Costco that have an untouchable moat, a subscription model business, or like Disney that's trading at a 16 PE ratio right now lower than the the general market, lower than the S&P 500, and it has growth potentials as well with Disney streaming. There's so many companies that I think are better places to put your money than speculating with different IPOs. You might be able to get lucky and buy the Beyond Meat, the one that goes up three times. You could have as well just bought Slack and lost 45% of your money. So do you want to gamble with it? You can. I'm not going to with mine. I'm going to continue to put it into companies that already know how to turn a profit and ones that I think have good growth prospects. And on the topic of selling a product for less than the cost of making it, there's a difference between when a company does that and it's the only thing that they do and it's being funded by investors than when a company like Disney does it. With Disney's streaming service, Disney Plus, they're going to be selling that product for less than the cost of creating it. But they're funding it with the rest of their organization. They have a a bunch of parks, cruise ships, merchandise, production companies. The profits from that are more than enough to cover the expense of their streaming service. So me as an investor putting money into Disney, I'm not at risk of this streaming service bankrupting the company and making so I lose my investment. So I'm okay when a company like Apple does it with their streaming service or Disney does it with theirs and they venture into new products and they use the massive amounts of money to fund those projects at a loss. What I don't like is when a company in and of itself is unprofitable and it continues to be unprofitable for years and years and years and it's being funded by investors. That scares me. I'm not going to put my money into those type of companies. All right, the next email is from Martha. Hi, Joseph. Thank you for your awesome channel and for sharing with us your knowledge and experience. I'm sure you are helping many people. Um, Thank you, Martha. That is kind of you to say. 
She says, I just found your YouTube channel at the right time for sure because I have been thinking about investing in REITs and the money that I have right now in the bank is $17,000. I'll continue saving each month, but I don't want the money just sitting in my account earning nothing. The problem is, is that I'm 64 and I am planning on retiring in the next year or so. I'm not sure if this is the right choice for me. As everyone says, the market has to make a correction next year. I'm a little scared of losing that money. If I were at least 10 years younger, I would use your advice of scaling and see your dividends growing, but at this point, I don't think I have time for that. Can you please let me know what do you think and what would you recommend? Maybe another type of investment. Thank you so much for your time. I'll be looking forward to hearing from you. All right, Martha. Well, I'm glad that you wrote in. You know, when I got this email, I read over it uh, last night, I think, and I, I thought, man, this is a, I think going to be a difficult email to respond to because I think it's a difficult situation at least if I'm getting like the full story here there might I hopefully have some like investment account retirement account or a pension or you know something else you have money somewhere else saved up Uh, if the 17,000 is all you have to your name as far as savings for retirement and you're planning on retiring in a couple years that's a difficult situation to be in and I try to make this channel positive. You know, I, I try to make it be motivating and, and being an encouraging message, have people take control of their finances. And I try to show that the, the world of investing is a really interesting, deep world that you can learn lots about. And it can be entertaining and educating and all of that good stuff. Right. But I've also made a focus on trying to make this channel realistic, that the things that I show with my portfolio, the reason that I show the returns, I'm not trying to promise riches to people that money is easy. You know, that investing is an easy thing to do. Uh, I try to, to keep a level of realism there as to not lead people with false expectations. And I'm not going to try to do that in your situation with this email as well. Now, $17,000, as I'm sure you're fully aware, is not enough. Even if you invest extremely wisely, that's not enough money to retire on. Because let's say that you invest at a 10% rate year over year in perpetuity forever, Right. That's a $1,700 return every year. So even if you invested as wisely as possible and you got a a guaranteed 10% return, that's still only just like a couple thousand dollars a year, right? So that's not enough to live off of. So I'm I'm sure you're aware of that. Uh, I think the biggest steps that you can take right now are one, reduce the cost of your living as much as possible. Make sure you cut down everything that you can cost of living, you know, and, and try to make it the biggest bang for your buck. So stuff that you might be wasting your money on, but it's not bringing you a lot of joy. Cut that stuff out first. You know, you can keep spending money on the things that really bring you joy. That's the whole point of it. But you try to bring down your cost of living as much as possible. Your savings rate, you need to increase as much as possible, especially over the the next couple of years that you're working. Try to bump that $17,000 up absolutely as much as you can, because that will be really helpful. Before even trying to invest, I think the better thing at your point would be to try to reduce any kind of debt you have. So if you have any kind of payments, home payments that you can pay off, try to get rid of any kind of debt you have to get your cost of living down. In 2019, the average social security payment was about $1,500 a month. So that's what you're looking at with Social Security on average. I'm sure you might have a better understanding of what yours specifically is going to be. But I think what I would do is just save as much money as I can and have that supplement my Social Security cost and then try to reduce cost of living as much. Outside of that, there's not too much that you can do other than just saving, investing wisely, cutting your cost and trying to supplement your Social Security. I don't know of too many other steps you can take at this point. Now, As far as feedback on your choice of investment saying that you're going to put that money in REITs, I would not put all of your money into REITs. 
there's no good reason to do that in my opinion. REITs are a great sector. It's my biggest sector that I have. I have 20% of my portfolio. But even as much as I love them, I still mitigate the risk of it by only having 20% of my overall portfolio in it. And if you're looking for income and assets that produce large payments over time, telecom, utilities, there's other consumer defensive stocks that you can put money in that can still give you a pretty high yield comparable to REITs, but then not all of your risk is concentrated in one sector. You don't want all of your risk of all the money you've saved concentrated just in the REITs. And there's no reason to do that. I would spread it out at least between four or five sectors that all pay relatively good yield and high income and are, are pretty stable. So that's what I would do with the 17000 you have now. I would continue to add to it as fast as possible. Then I would look at ways to reduce your cost of living as much as possible. So another thing is that I want to point out for other people outside of Martha in this email. She says, if I were at least 10 years younger, I would use your advice of scaling and see your dividends growing. But at this point, I don't think I have time for that. Take heed of these warnings. People that don't invest and, you know, they haven't done it in the past. A lot of times they actually have a good excuse. Martha here, you know, YouTube's a relatively new thing. People like me that are going and showing their investments and showing this type of stuff off and, and explaining how to do it and the whole proliferation of all these different apps that allow us to invest for free, sometimes with fractional shares, this type of stuff is new. People 20 years ago didn't have as much information, as much access. Investing was very scary to do. There wasn't much education behind it. It was kept behind all these hurdles of financial advisors and you know financial jargon and all these things that made it confusing and intimidating. Now we have the availability to do it and not that many people are doing it. So people, listen to Martha's email here. It, she says if she could go back just 10 years, she would have been doing this a long time ago. We have the information now. We have access to the information, to the different brokers that allow this. We should start doing this and then hopefully we can be in a good situation when we retire. So there's a lot of stats showing that the millennial generation is not investing that much. And I, I think that's a huge mistake. And every single time I see an email like this of somebody that's older, you know, all of them, if they have invested, they're so grateful that they were making those decisions earlier. If they haven't, all of them say, you know, if I could go back in time, I would have invested. I would have put more focus and more priority on this. So I think that to other people, you know, give heed to what Martha's saying here. Martha, in your situation, I'd like to hear more about it, but that's my advice for you that I have right now. All right, guys. Well, I spent more time than I thought on those questions there, so I'll go ahead and end it there. Um, I'll try to have another video out later this week. If you haven't, subscribed to the show. It helps me out every time you guys subscribe and hit the like on the different videos. Apparently, that helps the YouTube algorithm, so I haven't really tested it out myself. But apparently liking the video, subscribing helps spread it. So thanks for everybody that spreads the word, spreads the videos around and shares them with your friends. And for the people that want to take it a step further and join in the Discord, we've been having a lot of fun discussions there, sharing different investment ideas. We have people that are brand new, people that are retired with seven-figure accounts. And so it's a, it's a fun mix of people there we have already. So if you want to join that, there's a link in the description for that. Otherwise, I'll see you guys next time.